I think the greatest challenge is about managing culture and it's an organic, constantly moving thing. Welcome to this episode of the Business of Architecture and Design, where we rejoin our host, Isabel Tolland, director of Aileen Sage Architects, and our guest, SJB's Adam Haddo, who talks more about succession planning and the benefits of taking long sabbaticals. And now, over to Isabel. Principal Director and Owner at SJB Sydney, Adam Haddo, is an architect and urban designer. In 2009, at the age of 35, Adam was awarded the Property Council Australia Future Leader Award. Adam is also a member of several professional bodies, including being a past chapter councillor for the Australian Institute of Architects and a founding member of DARC. Adam's diverse experience and creative expertise is recognised by numerous architectural accolades, including international awards for CASBAR, winner of the 2015 World Architecture Festival for Mixed-Use Completed Buildings, and Cleveland Rooftop, winner of the 2018 Architizer A-Plus Award. Adam was also a creative director of the Australian National Architecture Conference in 2014. We're delighted to have Adam Haddo here with us in the studio. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. So you've been a principal for now for around 17 years. Is there some idea that you started to think about when you might start handing over to other directors or start bringing in new people into mm. that fold? Yeah, two years ago now, um, I took full year of sabbatical and part of the reason to do that was twofold. One was I needed a break after that long. And two, and my my business partner, John, says this to me in the most loveliest way, that sometimes I can fill the space. He's like, sometimes you just need to let other people fill the space. And, you know, I have a big personality, so I kind of completely accept that. And actually, by me not being there for 12 months, it created opportunity for people to step into that space. So that was part of it, because you see... It's really easy to see successes and failures and weaknesses and strengths when you create the the void or create a space for people to move into. Um, And I think it also gave people an opportunity in the practice to see what they did and didn't want to do. I think some people stepped up into a role and went, ooh, that's not what I want. (laughs) Let's just step back down into a role that I did want or step sideways into something else. And other people who maybe didn't think that they wanted that role suddenly were like, oh, actually, I really enjoy doing this. Um, I didn't think that was architecture, but I really enjoy doing it. I think that's been a good first step Mm -hmm. to look at that transition. I also think it's important at a personal level to not see the transition as a failure because I think sometimes you can think if you're not leading the business, you're a failure. I think it's different for smaller practice to bigger practice as well. I think in a smaller practice, it's much more likely that a person, the practice is a person's practice um, and it you know, it's their personality and it will always be their personality. In a bigger practice, uh, I think it's much more important that it's kind of a collective and if it's going to have any strength beyond the first generation. I mean, our Mm. business now is beyond the first generation, almost beyond the second, and I'd say I'm almost in the third generation of the business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, making sure that we set it up. And I think the things that I learned by taking over the business when we did, the bad things that happened, make sure they don't happen again. So making sure that, you know, we're going through a process now of just re-looking at the, the actual legal structure of the business because it's not very suitable, actually, right. to enable people to buy in and buy out quickly. Right. Um, and I know that's part part of the Champions of Change was we were discussing across all the 10 practices the, the benefits and the weaknesses of everyone's structure to just to try and work out 
whose was working well and whose wasn't. Right. Uh, probably it's fair to say they're all good and they're all bad. Right. Uh, but learning where that, you know, what, what came out of different structures was really good. So we're just at a process of while the partnership is quite small with only four of us, trying to work out how to just tweak the ownership or tweak the legal structure so that then for the next people coming in as partners, it can create the best, can create some fertile ground for them that they can actually kind of grow it in a really uh, lovely way. How do you think your role will shift? Do you have any idea in terms of like, as you you mentioned, sort of transitioning out a bit and Mm. letting other people lead? Mm. How do you see your role and, and to ensure that, as you said, it doesn't feel like a step down, it'll mm. feel like, you know, it's just mm. shifting? I'm probably in my ideal world, um, the period of time which I've had being broad across projects would turn into a period of time of being much deeper in projects. So I think it's just about, I suppose, the expansion and contraction. And in a way, when you contract, you get a deeper engagement with things. Mm. So... Hopefully what will happen is I can become less broad because people will take over some of that ownership and I'll be able to become deeper again into projects, which I miss. I do miss that depth that you get when you're just working on two projects as opposed to 25. (laughs) Um, So hopefully that's what happened. I mean, it really comes down to what the vision, the kind of next vision of the practice will be with the next leaders and how they'd want to engage. I think, you know, I'm quite young, so retirement's not an option, <laughs> but maybe just changing the way I work is, is an option. We have a forced retirement age as a director of 65 right? Uh, so that you don't stay, you know, don't out- outstay your welcome and you do set the practice up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite interesting because one of our staff is, uh, staff members is, is approaching the age of 65 and he's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I have to leave. And we're like, no, no, no. no that doesn't mean you. Like, anyone can be in the office as old as they want to be. Yeah. It's just you can't be the partner or the director in the business at that age because right. you need to give it to somebody who can reinvigorate it. So I think we're really bad as a society of making use of, you know, older people. Mm. Uh, we, as you probably know, uh, we opened the Architects Bookshop on Crown Street. Yeah. And one of our staff there is... I won't tell her age, but she's fabulously old. She's one of the best resources we have in the bookshop because, you know, Mary used to run the MCA bookshop and, you know, so she has an incredible knowledge and Mm. having that capacity to kind of talk about books which are 30 years ago, do you remember Mm. that book and what was it and where should we get it from, how do we find it, total value. But at the same time we need the kind of architecture students who write the newsletters that we send out and things like that. So Mm. I think valuing the the kind of all spectrums is really something super important that I've come to yep. to learn. I think architecture has traditionally been a young – it's kind of actually been an old person's profession, a young person's profession, and you get somewhere in the middle and you're a little bit lost. Yep. Um, I think I'm in that middle at the moment. I'm like, hmm, what's my role? <laughs> you know, you're either the new person and you've got super exciting ideas or the old person who's done it all before and knows exactly what to do. Right. And when you're in the middle, you're a bit like, oh, neither one of those, how do I – relate, you know, to the profession a little right. bit. So 65 is the age where you, you're the old person, isn't yeah, I can't remember whether it's 60 or 60. It might be 60, okay. actually. Oh, right. That's quite young, 60. isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, well, it especially is. Well, for the, architects, given that, yeah. you know, how long it takes to actually get somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, the S, and, the S and the J and the B actually wrote that in themselves. Right. Um, how interesting. And so this, the S retired from SJB and did does some work for himself and sits on boards and some foundations and things. The B... Um, retired from SJB but still 
Um, he has a practice with his daughter, who's an architect, so a small. It's kind of just changed scale for Charles. Um, yeah. And he does a whole lot of other stuff as well. Uh, and the B, Michael Bialik, he's actually out, he's over 60. Right. Um, I don't think he'd mind anyone telling me that. Um, but he um, is just working through the transition into the new partners in Melbourne, but he's soon to retire. But he, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think any one of them will stop being an architect. I think no. it's just more about the way they practice. But probably being able to <coughs> recognise that, not so much a limit, but, but knowing when it's time to kind of shift and yeah. step aside for others is, yeah. is probably a great strength, I think. For yeah, them. absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, um, I think sometimes you can out, outstay. Yeah. I think it's like prime ministers, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Sometimes it would be better just to kind of hand over to someone new before yep. you get, you know, unelected yes. um, and you kind of miss the opportunity to kind of enable the good work you've done to be remembered and instead just people focus on the, the reasons you were unelected really. Yeah. Um, so I think as a partner in the practice it's important for us to just think about handing the business over when it's at its strength, not when it's in its weakness. Not not needing to find a new partner to give, hand the business over, yep. but actually wanting to give it over to mm. somebody. And perhaps recognising that early on and building that, which in a way you sort of have talked about this this structure that you're setting up and seeing it as as being a custodian is recognising that fact while you're still like very much a yep. young leader in a sense, yep. but setting people up to become other young leaders and then yep. kind of take over progressively. Yep. Is a- yeah, absolutely. I think too on a personal level, I've never worked anywhere else. So it's quite intriguing for me. SJB is more than a business. It's kind of like, you know, it has been my life. Yep. So it's really confronting actually to think about not being at SJB, but also equally it could be exciting. So, Do you think you would not be at SJB though or just being a I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that I could not be at some point, but right. um, I think probably just in a different role. But, you know, maybe I take a long holiday just between those two things. Yeah, <laughs> Still a few years away, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think will be the greatest disruptor in our industry over the coming years? I think the impact of globalisation has been the biggest disruptor and is about to be more of a disruptor in the architectural industry uh, in the sense that there's kind of a, in a negative way, there's a flattening of culture, particularly in Australia at the moment, particularly in Sydney at the moment. If you're an international architect doing a building in Sydney, somehow that's better. (laughs) Somehow you're more knowledgeable than Mm. a local architect. So I think that has been a disruptor in a bad way, not in a good way. And I I hope that the next disruptor is kind of a reclaiming of some of that ground, a reclaiming of the fact that you can have a global you can have global knowledge but you can have local content and that kind of idea of globalism that you know it's important that our cities don't become the same as every other city in the world and we don't have the same knowledge as every other place in the world and there are the kind of nuances cultural and architectural nuances that exist and so I hope that we're able to effectively communicate that to kind of government and the community, that that's, that's kind of important, that, you know, of course, having people from somewhere else do buildings in Australia is a great thing, you know. Mm. We've got some amazing buildings because of that. Yeah. Uh, equally, we have some really horrendous buildings because of that. Mm. So it's not, a one, it's not a one solution. But I think recently we've become enthralled by the, the idea of the other yep. and actually hopefully there will be a disruptor which is about a kind of understand and you can kind of see it in social media a bit mm. um, where there's a kind of a movement back to two women in my office of fermenting their own food at the moment you know this idea right. of much more local production yeah and I think that that 
will disrupt in a good way and come back to kind of a local production of buildings and a local uh, engagement of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, We've probably actively tried to pursue not doing buildings outside of where we live um, for a couple of reasons. One Mm. is because I hate getting on a plane to go to work. Like I just think that's the most boring thing on the planet. But also I think it's important that you live with what you design, like Mm. the successes and the failures that you kind of have to, it's good to acknowledge those. And there's a kind of a huge level of honesty when you're doing a building in your street. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I can't just take another w- walk to work. If, but that's <laughs> not very good. You know? So I think that's a bit of a disruptor. I think there is a, there, there is a disruptor happening in terms of building ownership and building procurement and everything's becoming bigger. There's bigger corporations owning more buildings and then having more control. And I think the biggest struggle with that is this corporate lack of memory that Mm. I was talking about earlier, where, you know, I think the nuance of knowledge and local content is so important to the cities and to kind of our sense of happiness. I hope that big corporations start to real start to recognise that in a mm. way. I think in a funny way, I think the globalization of the way in which you can run business can actually help leverage localism. You know, we have much more access to say just as a really simple example, financial systems, accounting mm. systems, which you know if we can actually kind of tap into that knowledge, we can actually run our businesses better and have a much more succinct business in a kind of local level. Mm. I think there's a big disruptor going on with um, outsourcing work. Um, we we actually half own an outsourcing business um, mm-hmm. in, in in Asia and the reason we decided to, to collaborate with one of our staff members actually to own that business is because you could see that outsourcing was happening and you could see that outsource, you know, that as a kind of employer, you were essentially sending work to somewhere where you didn't understand the conditions of mm. that engagement. Yep. And you had no, there was no transparency to it. There was mm-hmm. no ability for you to kind of talk to the person about what the employment environment was for the people who were actually doing the work that you were proposing was yours. Mm. So we invested and we own half a business in Asia, which does a lot of work with us. Um, and that's quite. I think that's quite good because we're able to build knowledge with them. They're able to build knowledge with us, mm-hmm. and it's quite a co- collaborative environment. They're separate businesses, so mm-hmm. that we can all work with other people if we want. You know, if we believe in the things that we do in our office about equity and fairness and openness and transparency, mm-hmm. well, then we shouldn't be, you know, sending sending money overseas to document work of ours to a Mm. place where we don't know that that exists. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like where you go on holidays, like I won't, we won't, we won't go to a place where there aren't strong human rights around um, the LGBTQI community. Mm. So, you know, we shouldn't, we should spend our money where we know it's being spent well and and kind of supporting our moral obligations, I suppose. So in a way, that outsourcing, well, it's a, it is a game changer in the mm. sense that you are able to produce things uh, cheap, more cheaply. Right. And, you know, I think builders will start and developers will start to use it. They'll start to look at cutting out architects, actually, mm. because they can get a building documented without having a local architect involved. So that outsourcing business is documentation or um, visualisation? It's, no, it's not visualisation. It's mainly documentation, but it does fall into lots of different phases of the project. So it's not just all back end mm-hmm. in terms of contract documentation. It can fall into DAs and things like that. So, And, you know, often lots of the people who work in the office are actually educated in Australia as well. So it's not about a lack of knowledge. Mm. Uh, it's more about just a different economic environment and... Yep. 
our outsourcing business best pays the staff well yeah. um, in that local environment. It's just mm-hmm. that there's an opportunity to leverage the kind of different economic environments globally to make sure that you can be still be competitive. Uh-huh. Um, but that will say? change as well. You know, like pe- like countries and economic environments will start yeah, to normalise, you know, mm. and countries that were once poor and therefore had an emerging, growing uh, education market and therefore knowledge base mm. become wealthy, in inverted commas, in terms of their knowledge, mm. and that, you know, balances out their economic conditions. So, you know, that changes over time. I think it's just, it's actually a momentary thing. Right. And that momentary thing might be a 20-year period, but it's a momentary thing for me. Right. Mm. Are there a few businesses that come under the SJB umbrella then? No, just that. Uh, we partnered with one of our ex-employees. He was he was going home and he thought, actually, here's an opportunity. Why don't mm. I use the relationship I have with SJB to set up a business that can support SJB and do yep. work with SJB but enabled me to live where my family lives, really. Right. And so that's how it kind of grew. And is the Melbourne office separate as a business or...? Yeah, Melbourne office separate as a business. So we, we both, sorry, the the two, the Melbourne office and the Sydney office own 50% of that office. So we okay. each own 25% of it in a way. But, yeah, they're separate financial structure, everything businesses, yeah. Um, have you felt any impact um, from companies such as WeWork and is their model something that our industry should be concerned about? I don't know whether we should be concerned. We actually do work for WeWork. So we, we did the base building for their first... Sydney offices in Harris Street in Piedmont, 100 Harris Street, which is an old adaptive reuse of an old wool store. And they went into the building and I think it's actually their globally their most successful building because <laughs> right. it's a it's, uh, beautiful old wool store, so people love mm. being there. Uh, I think what WeWork offer is a great sense of flexibility. I've heard of other offices, architectural offices, only having WeWork space now, not yeah. having actual office space of their own. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a horses for courses thing. I think um, there's certain sizes where that's of benefit and certain sizes where it's not. It's the same as the We Live model that they have this uh, in New York. They've got a couple of We Lives, which I did a review on for a journal, and it was just looking at uh, what that meant to the kind of housing market. And this is all really around um, build to rent models. Uh, so I think it's more just that there is more flexibility. There's becoming a high level of flexibility in the way in which we do business and yeah. that can be quite good. That's another one where I think I look forward to, like we work, I think now, like one of the largest employers of architects in the US, I think. Right. Um, so a lot of their, all of their design work's done out of the US or most of it's done out of the US. But I look forward to a kind of the moment where they realise that actually they don't have to have everyone designing out of the US and they can have offices in Australia or they can have staff in Australia designing building, designing their fit-outs and things like that. So I think that happens, that will happen. But I think, it's an, I think it is an opportunity in a way because the one thing I, th- I think is starting to happen, and this is probably multi-unit residential more than office space, but having people who own buildings and have a long-term interest in the quality of the building mm. is far exceeds the, uh, you know, such of a great benefit in terms of rather than, you know, a developer just selling the building to investors yeah. because the conversation is inherently different if someone is going to own the building long term than if mm. they're going to get rid of it. And that's a really nice thing. So when you've got someone like WeWork um, owning a building or at least even tenanting a building for 20 years, they're inherently interested in the building and the quality of that building and yeah the kind of design outcome and the longevity of it, mm. whereas, you know, if a developer is just flicking a building, mm. they just want it to look good on day one and yeah, not, not so worried afterwards.
To hear more from Adam Haddo about how to future-proof your business, register now at australiandesignreview.com for the inaugural one-day Business of Architecture and Design Conference to be held on Monday the 11th of November in Sydney. Register at australiandesignreview.com. What are your thoughts on the Nightingale model in terms of um, residential development? I think Jeremy Jeremy actually used to work um, at SJB in Melbourne. Right. Yeah, Jeremy and I worked together for a long time, so I know Jeremy quite well. I think it's unbelievably smart. He's so, such a he's got so much energy. He's so intelligent in terms of bringing that to the market. Um, I think it's a small tip of a big iceberg um, in the sense that you know if you look at Coles and Woolworths, for example, and you think about a Woolworths in Mossman. Mm. And the ability to get staff that rate that they need to have staff working at in Mossman, mm. the people who work in Mossman aren't going to be from Mossman. They're mm. going to be from somewhere else. Yeah. And then at the same time you think, well, actually they have a they have a kind of collective quantum of people who need housing, who should have housing, and actually someone like Woolworths could become one of the biggest land or, or housing owners in Australia in the sense that if they start to create a great environment for their staff to live in, they obviously have a retention of staff over a longer period of time. It kind of supports their business model in terms of being able to then retain those staff and not have as much turnover. So I feel like there there is about to be a shift towards a much more probably European way of housing where ownership is not as necessary as we've seen it to be in Australia. That mm. we've, you know, we talk about not owning a home as being a tragedy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> actually, it can be really liberating not owning your own home. Yep. Um, and actually, if you've got good landlords um, who see contributing good buildings and good living environments to the benefit of the community and their businesses, it mm. can be really amazing, actually. So I feel like that's probably going to be a big disruptor Mm. in the next 20 years that there'll be a bit of a shift culturally in Australia about home ownership and that may be actually quite a nice thing. You talked a bit earlier about this idea of taking responsibility just more in relationship to your own work Mm. and why you only really work locally. Mm. Um, I think that's a really interesting sort of, I guess, aspect about your practice and something that's probably quite important and perhaps a shift that, as you say, might need to happen if we Mm. ask to kind of start thinking about our local context um, and taking more responsibility for mm. it. I, I don't know whether that's an optimistic thing or, or whether yeah. perhaps hopefully maybe that will be a, a shift that you see coming perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've tried to look at is how do we get global, how do we engage in global knowledge mm. but act in a very local way? We've been talking to a group of architects globally about setting up, rather than having rather than owning businesses, mm. <laughs> but having relationships and we don't have knowledge about all the different types of buildings that we ever want to work on and but actually we you know we could have a relationship with other practices in the world that could share that knowledge Mm. and rather than thinking you have to own the knowledge yeah we worked with uh david chipperfield's office in both in london and berlin on two different competitions and that was really the start of a conversation we've been having with them about the sharing of knowledge and the sharing of culture in a way and Mm. um, so Christoph Felger who's one of the partners in Berlin we've been discussing with him a lot about you know sharing staff and creating opportunities for staff from our office to go to their office and for their office to come to our office and Mm. just not needing to own each other or anything like that yeah I wouldn't be that 
um, presumptuous or egotistical, but, mm. you know, acknowledging that they have a skill that we don't have and them thinking about the fact that we have a local content skill yep. that they don't have and how do we share that and in a meaningful way mm. um, rather than a kind of master and servant yes. scenario. Uh, and, you know, we've started I've st- on the back of that, I kind of thought about how do we? How could you set up a network of practices that could contribute to each other's skill base and knowledge base, but not but not have to own each other? And mm. you know, you could call somebody who knew a lot about auditoriums mm. and say, "Come and work with us with this auditorium in Sydney," because we really don't know about auditoriums. That you could pay them for that work, but they and they could be part of your team and they're kind of a consistent part of your team and it's not every time you need to kind of dial in some or find some knowledge you had to go and find someone else you know mm. but it was kind of just a nice friendship I suppose yeah. would be how I would say it yeah. yeah do you think that's quite a non-conventional or non-anglo way of thinking about things just thinking culturally as well um, more recently about a lot of these things in terms of, um, you know, as you say, there's this kind of general default to a master and servant, like someone has something else that needs the, And it's very much that European approach to how mm. even we've come to Australia, there's this sense mm. of needing to dominate, whereas mm. actually understanding that someone else has knowledge that maybe you don't have mm. and you can bring as well and reciprocate mm. is kind of mm. a more interesting way to sort of coexist with each other. Yeah, I just read um, the most amazing book I've ever read, which is called Dark Emu. Mm. I don't know if you've read it, but yeah. um, Bruce Pascoe, uh, Aboriginal academic, wrote this book uh, and it was about the knowledge in on the continent prior to white settlement and during early white settlement mm. and this kind of discussion about um, terra nullis and, you know, what, what actually was here when white settlers first came. Mm. And the thing that I got most out of it was this really strong understanding that it's a kind of a linked – there is a kind of linked system and something that you do affects somebody else yeah. even if you can't see it. And how – if you live upstream, you know, how do you make sure that you let enough water downstream and how if you're down – for the downstream people mm. and if you're downstream, how do you know not to cut the river off so that the eels can still go upstream to spawn and feed the people who are upstream? So this kind of symbiotic relationship between people who never met each other. Yeah who knew they, they knew each other existed, they mm. kind of imagined that there must be someone downstream. <laughs> How do you kind of foster that relationship? It's such an amazing book and it's such an amazing thing to think that that relationship has been on the continent for in excess of 80,000 years. Mm. And as a white culture, white Australian culture, we're only just learning the benefits in that and we're only just starting to see the impacts of not living yep. that way and I suppose I want to I'm interested in how to take some of that thinking into the into the business mm. how do you how do you acknowledge that uh, symbiotic relationship I think one some of the projects that I'm the most excited about now are the ones where we're working with other architects so we're working yep. on a project in Newcastle with three other architects we're working on a project in Sydney with four other architects, we're working one in Canberra with nine other architects. Uh, in those roles, um, our role and my role in particular is kind of bringing the people together mm. um, and creating opportunity in the Canberra one in particular the client asked us to do the entire project and I was like, there's no way we want to do the entire project. We want, we definitely want to be involved in the project, but I, I don't want to have to do 10 hectares of design. Like yeah. that's ridiculous. <laughs> the client originally I think was a bit of a fe- bit offended, but right. actually when we kind of sat down and said, look, this would be far richer if we got a whole group of different architects together who had different skills so that we could kind of the different scales of buildings would work, the different types of buildings would work. And, you know, we've got nine people together and nine offices together and that re- that 
kind of collaborative environment where it's not collaborative in the sense that there's seven different firms working on one building, which is mm. actually that's not collaboration, that's just disaster. <laughs> um, but it's collaborative in the sense that you're designing a building and you know who's designing one next to you and you can kind of you can collaborate on the things that need to collaborate, like car park entries and levels and streets and things like that, and also acknowledge each other through the design of the building so they can have a kind of Benini Borromini kind of relationship and discussion between each other and that it's a really productive symbiotic relationship as opposed to being a binary thing where it's just give me something and I'll take it from you. Um, so they're the jobs that they're the projects I really love. That's where I'd like to see the practice heading. And this is kind of a much more idea of the collective rather than the business. Yeah. Um, we recently have set the business up in streams, acknowledging that people have different strengths and that's kind of that people over time build expertise that we need to acknowledge that expertise. Yeah. And in a way, trying to kind of, you know, acknowledge that both within the business and outside the business so that when we're working with other people, knowing that we're not really good at that type of building and actually there's somebody who's really good at it and why don't we just invite them to do it with us? And I get so excited by those projects because they're so enriching and they're energising and they're really cool. They're kind of they're happy projects, which is happy is a really bad word, maybe maybe more joyful, but they're they're just engaged and um, they're really supportive. How is the leadership team at SJB preparing to take advantage of disruption and ensure they remain one of the most successful businesses in the industry? We're a bit reactive rather than proactive, I would say, to some of these things. Um, I think where we are, I think where we are being proactive is where we have people who have exceptional skill who drive innovation. We do try to do um, case study projects or projects where we think there's a kind of innovative bent to it, which we can really leverage. We tend to give free reign to people in those environments and that creates opportunity, which I then think helps strengthen the business. And I was talking earlier about community consultation. When we first did community consultation, that was around the time I came back from my Churchill Fellowship and I kind of was like, hang on a minute, we're not, we're not actually talking to communities. And there is a difference between consultation and information. Mm-hmm. Sometimes community consultation is just information. It's about advising people about what's going on. But yeah. other times it is about this consultative environment. You know, I think we were quite early as a practice to engage in some of that way of working you know, meant we were able to grow the the urban design division because we had a kind of strength in in working out how to properly, you know, we'd had successes and failures in the way in which we can engage people. We did a huge project with um, Department of Housing on uh, Chester Hill and Villawood and, you know, Villawood is 90% or 80% owned as a suburb by the Department of Housing in all of these different buildings and huge variety of different tenants and experiences and, you know, running community consultation out there was just absolutely blissful because people acknowledged they were a part of a community mm-hmm. and then you do community consultations in areas where you would think it would be far more sensible and professional and it was really rancid. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, learning from that about how to approach different communities and how to engage with it. So you know, that's one end. I think, you know, partnering with this employ- this ex-employee to set up an outsourcing uh, part of the business has been really rewarding because we've got We've learnt skill out of that. Um, they they can bring some exceptional skill from from three um, D modelling for us in terms of the documentation through three D modelling. Mm-hmm. Equally, you know, having the plan our planners um, like that's just amazing to have them actually part of your team where yeah. they work probably for eighty percent of other architects. They only do probably twenty percent work with us, but 
you know, the ability just to be able to w- turn around to somebody and say, okay, am I reading this planning policy right? Is this, mm. you know, not having to set up a meeting and go through that rigmarole, just yeah. that immediacy of engagement is really... So I think that's probably how we try to look at creating opportunity for us, you know, for ourselves and, and structuring ourselves so we can survive <laughs> or thrive, yeah. actually, thrive. Yeah. yeah. So now some questions that we regularly ask, ask our guests. What is it that you know now that you knew, wish you knew when you were starting out? Uh, that you'll never know. That's the thing. I was running, running into a friend in the street yesterday and it was like you always think when you start a practice that next year will be easier, that you'll know more and therefore it will be less, you know, difficult. But you'll realise every year that you actually or every day it's like, no, I'll never know. I just have to learn how to manage that and that's, that, that, that is kind of positive energy. Turning it from negative in kind of an unknown, turning the unknown into kind of an opportunity, I think that's the thing that I realise now. <laughs> What advice would you give to a new fledging practice in Australia starting out today? Do what you want to do and don't listen to anyone else. Like just if you want to do a certain type of building, do it. And don't look for traditional models to win that work from. Like, you know, everyone looks towards competitions to to win work from and I'd be like, it's the worst place to win a project because every other person is doing the competition. You know, if if you really want to do something and you you see a site, just do some work on it. Like in terms of spending some of your own time and money on something which you're not getting paid for, um, be really targeted about that and offer that to, you know, as kind of a in to a, someone who owns a site and say, look, I know you didn't ask us to do it, but we think this is a really amazing site and here's some ideas. And nothing will come of that, but something will come of it later. And that, that just opportunity of showing somebody the work you've done or that client might have another site or so. I think it's just about, just doing what you want to be doing and don't follow everyone else. What do you consider to have been your greatest challenge in your career so far and what did you learn from that? I think the greatest challenge is about managing culture, actually, and it's an organic, constantly moving thing. Um, People are... You you, you need to create an environment where people feel happy and comfortable and you can see... it's. I can see it... I can see now when it's not doing that when you can start to see the moments where it's shifting so I think creating the culture and the practice has been the thing that's been my most rewarding thing like I it's quite nice to walk in the office now and see all the people and they're all happy and they're enjoying their work and they all have families and they have lives outside of the business but they clearly have lives inside the practice so I think that's yeah. Conversely what do you consider to have been the greatest success of your career and what have you learnt from that? Um, the greatest success of my career, I think, I think is the friendships with clients. I think I used to think success was about winning an architectural award or getting a certain type of building typology or winning a contract or something like that. And I totally don't think that's success <laughs> anymore. I think it's, uh, it's an outcome of a successful environment, but it's not success in its own right. I think the process is far more important and having really great relationships with clients where there's a transparency to it, where there's an openness to it, where you can have a conversation. You can have a hard conversation with them in a really easy way and the acknowledgement of when you make a mistake and that they support you in making that mistake and they see you as a collaborator and partner. And I think then the inverse of that is seeing them as a collaborator and partner and not not um, coming, you know, not being aggressive towards them when they've made a mistake as well uh, or just haven't quite communicated what they wanted to communicate. So So now five and five. I'll give you one word and Mm -hmm. 
if you could give us your off-the-cuff response mm-hmm. as to what that word means to you. Mm-hmm. Success. Happiness. Gender equality. Essential. Disruption. Opportunity. Opportunity. Disruption. <laughs> <laughs> Downtime. Downtime. Reading. So who have been some of the most impl- influential people that you've met throughout your career so far? Uh, there's a friend of mine, um, his name's Peter Verwa. He, I met him, I was speaking at a conference that the Property Council were running. He used to be the CEO of the Property Council of Australia. He's become a really, you know, important person in my life from uh, kind of professionally and personally. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Like often we'll have conversations and I'm not really sure what we're having a conversation about, <laughs> to be honest, because he thinks at a speed that I, is just superhuman. But he he also has this ability to bring together a really ver- huge, wide perspective and bring it back down to kind of a local understanding. So, you know, he understands property and finance and global politics and he can kind of relate that to something very specific that's happening in Sydney at this period of time and he'll be like, and I'll be like, I wonder why this is happening. He's like, well, what you've got to understand is if that's happening, it's because of this and because of this financial structure, this political backlash, blah, 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 blah. And actually remember that actually that money's coming from here. And when he can, he kind of explains that and you're like, oh my God, that's so smart. Like that is actually exactly what's going on. You know, I try to catch up with Peter a couple of times a year just to kind of let him talk in a way because I've, his kind of perspective on things is something that I, that is not, that I don't often get. I think architects can often talk to each other a lot and we can kind of live in our slightly left inner city bubble (laughs) and we forget about the other percentage of the population and what else is going on in the world and what are really the you know some really important things that are happening um, you know nationally globally locally uh, Peter has an ability to kind of bring that back and kind of make it relevant to you as well um, often I find you know you can start th- thinking about global issues and it becomes so overwhelming that you're never quite sure how to engage in a discussion or a kind of solution Peter's quite good at saying, well, actually, if that's what you're interested in, this is this is what's happening. This is what you need to be doing. Um, so, yeah, I find he's, uh, he's been an amazing steward for me in terms of giving me some direction and helping um, define what's been important in my career. If you are serious about leading your architecture or design business, you can't afford to miss Peter Verwer at the Business of Architecture and Design Conference in Sydney on November the 11th. Peter will outline vital information on growth opportunities, give you insights into working with international clients and predict where your business opportunities lie over the next three to five years. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He thinks at a speed is just superhuman. That was Adam Haddo, Principal Director, SJB Sydney. If you run a business in the built environment industry, this keynote is essential. Register now at australiandesignreview.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Business of Architecture and Design, the final part of Adam Haddo's journey through the business of architecture. Join us next time when we begin a whole new conversation with an industry expert and practitioner. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media with thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. 
Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.